welcome to the Back in Action podcast. Are you a weekend warrior, a current or former high-performing athlete, or do you just have questions about what a chiropractor can do for you in a rehab setting? Here, we'll dive into the world of chiropractic and exercise rehab and how they both can be utilized to get you back in action. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Back in Action podcast. Um, Today is what I think is episode 20, and if it's not, I'm really sorry. Um, We're going to blame Connor because he's not here again. Um, So we have a really special guest with us today. She is a hypermobility doc, and she's going to talk to us all about that and what she does with her patients, the ins and outs of um, how she goes about coaching them and working with them. So Taylor, go ahead, take it away. Take us through like an intro of what you do. Sure. So I'm Taylor. I'm a chiropractor. Um, I completely work virtually and I only work with hypermobile clients. Um, I do hypermobility coaching and I basically coach them through the ins and outs of this diagnosis, help them navigate it, help them manage it while building strength and confidence along the way. Yeah. So take us through that coaching a little bit. Cause like when I, so I obviously like I went through your page and everything online um, and then I tried to do some homework on my own and like go through some stuff. So is there more to it than just looking at like movement principles? Like what do you, when working with a hypermobile patient, like what are the things that differ from working with just a, a patient who doesn't have hypermobility um, complications? Yeah. So with hypermobility comes chronic pain. And I think any chronic pain patient needs a biopsychosocial approach. So we work a lot on mindset. And we work a lot on confidence. And so one thing with hypermobility is that there are a lot of reoccurrent injuries, especially with training. And a lot of them have been told not to do certain things. So a lot of deconditioning, a lot of people come to me who haven't exercised in years because of these narratives that are unfortunately all over the internet. And so it's a lot of relearning. um, And it's also a lot of education, especially when it comes to subluxations. Those are real medical subluxations, not chiropractic subluxations. Um, And knowing when they're dangerous, when you do need to get them relocated, when you can relocate them yourself, what to do when it happens, and how to make them less intense and less frequent via strength training for the most part. So So are you writing them like programs then that are just tailored towards... All, okay, gotcha. Yeah, exactly. um, just because you already went into some of the stuff with exercise, one of the questions I had, um, and I don't know if this is a question you get a lot or if it's patients you see a lot, is uh, hypermobility and running. Because yeah. is there like a lot, like, is that more complicated or more complex than like people might think it is when they just think of hypermobility and running together? It is. And so there's also a lot of narratives around hypermobility and running. If you ask, majority of the hypermobile community, they will say that they were told to stop running at some point. And as with anything else, the answer is never to just stop doing what you love. There's always a way to make what you love possible, but there are different modifications and there are different things we need to be aware of when it comes to hypermobility and running. One of the main ones is upper cervical instability. And if you are dealing with that, which is a very common comorbidity seen in hypermobility, it's going to take you longer to get back to running and it's just going to be more of a gradual approach and it's going to be slower. Um, yeah. I don't know if I answered your full question. Yeah, no, 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 you did. Absolutely. Austin, I won't steal all the questions. Go ahead. If oh, you want no, to like chime it's, in. It's all good. Um, 
I'm definitely interested in just like your kind of patient population and obviously like it's people who deal with like hypermobility. Um, but in terms of like activity levels, are you seeing people that are kind of coming to you because they already are active or are you seeing people that they're like really not active and you're trying to push them more down that route or what does that look like for you? I would say a mixture, but majority are not active when they first see me. And it's mainly because they're scared. They're scared to start exercising again. They have past medical trauma. They have past histories of exercise causing them pain, causing them injuries. There's a lot of fear avoidance. Um, and there's a lot of comorbidities that make exercising really hard with this population. So dysautonomia, which is like an umbrella term for things like POTS, which is all over the internet now, um, orthostatic intolerance, and even chronic fatigue syndrome. And these things make exercise really, really hard. And we have to take that into consideration when we're programming for these patients and clients. And so I do definitely, I would say majority come to me at a very, haven't exercised in a long time, but most of them were athletes in their past and then stopped because they were told that they needed to. Yeah, no, that's awesome. And like, I think, or why I'm so interested to have you on the podcast is this is both probably Bridget and I can attest to this, like something that we're not really exposed to that much. Um, and having someone like you kind of come on and talk about this is like super valuable. Uh, but I'm, I'm kind of interested too in what you do within a session with your clients. So what does that kind of look like? You've kind of touched upon it a little bit, like a lot of coaching, um, a lot of the biopsychosocial model. Um, but how do you kind of change some of those narratives that, uh, some of these people have been dealing with or like whether they see it online or been told by their like GP or whatnot that they can't do th certain things? Like, how do you go about that? Yeah. I mean, changing beliefs in general is hard and it takes time. I think that's the biggest missing piece, especially as a young clinician that I didn't realize how much time it takes to change beliefs. Um, it's not going to happen on the first visit and never will and building trust. And you build trust by showing your patients that you care about them. You listen, you validate, you reassure, and you show them what they can do. And so a lot of my like face-to-face -face appointments are just talking, talking about what has gone on in the past two weeks, what has gone well, what hasn't, what do we need to change? Are our goals still tracking? What are we avoiding? What are we protecting? Why are we protecting these things? What different things stress-wise can we manage? What's in our control? What's not in our control? How do we work around those? I do a lot of time blocking with patients uh, or clients. I do a lot of just overall well-being stuff. But honestly, the way I work is, like I said, completely virtual. And not everything is done face-to-face. -face. A lot of it's asynchronous as well. And I think that's something we didn't learn at all in school. And it can be so powerful, especially for like client adherence. I don't really have that many issues with that as I did when I was in an in-person practice. So that's something that both Bridget and I, we've had a couple of people on that are primarily virtual. Um, first off, like how did you get into that space to begin with? And what does that kind of look like? Like, obviously there's some pros and cons to it. Um, but how do you feel about the virtual space in general? I love it. I think it's the future. I think it's the future of healthcare. I think if you're not 
at least looking into having a virtual component to your practice, you are steps behind, in my opinion. Um, but how I got involved in it was through the Honey Badger Project. I don't know how many people know about that, but it completely changed my life and I can talk about it all day long. So if anyone has ever any questions on it, I'm happy to answer. Um, but I saw other clinicians doing what I wanted to do and I reached out to them. And that's my biggest advice to students and new grads. If you see somebody doing what you want to be doing, ask them how they're doing it. 99.9% .9 of the time, they're so excited that you care and they want to help you. So um, yeah, reaching out to other like-minded clinicians is how I got into the space. Um, kind of backtracking just a little bit when we were talking, I think it was to Austin's point when you mentioned Austin, like patients with fear avoidance and all that. How much of that do you think is due to um, other healthcare professionals kind of almost like almost like implementing fear into the patients. Um, Cause I know like we've talked about this before on the podcast that that seems to be a very common trend. Um, so just touch on that a little bit. If you, I mean, I don't know, like, have you seen that a few times, if not all the time? A hundred percent of the time. I don't think I've had a single client not have that in some way, shape or form and medical gaslighting, not that this is medical gaslighting, but medical gaslighting is extremely, extremely prevalent in this community because there's not a lot known about hypermobility. I mean, we didn't learn about it in school. I know most people didn't. It's just now starting to touch the surface in the research. And so there a lot of doctors don't know about it and they will straight up tell patients like there's nothing you can do. This is a genetic disorder. Live with it. Don't exercise. Don't do yoga. Don't do running. Don't do the things you love. Like these are the things that are being told day in and day out. And it's not okay. It's not okay. Right. Um, so do you think that that's probably the toughest barrier then is because I would think like, if I'm that patient, like my primary care is telling me like, okay, you can't do these things anymore. But oh, sorry, something just popped up that said I raised my hand. But anyways, <laughs> um, but do you think like that the issue is, is like, okay, their primary is telling them you can't do these things anymore, but then you're telling them they can. Do you think that causes a lot of on like that's what causes the uncertainty in patients' heads? Or do you think that's just something that they're so conditioned to because they've been dealing with it for so long? I think by the I think it depends on the person. And I think by the time they usually get to me, they're fed up with that answer and they want to have a different answer. So they're more willing to hear me out. But I think it really depends on the person and where they're at in their journey. Right. Their past experiences yeah. as well. Yeah. Um, so going along with uh, connective tissue disorders and all that, do you see a lot of patients who have like GI issues then too? Because like I know like with Ehlers-Danlos, like that's a very common thing. So with your hypermobility coaching, is that also included in that? Or like walk us through how, how those tie in together? Yeah. So with HEDS and with HSD, they should be the same as of right now. There really is no differences right now in this time period. Ask me in a year, that's going to change. But as of right now, we're going to act like they're the same. And so with a connective tissue disorder, your connective tissue lines everything in your body, including your GI system. And there's a lot of GI issues, a lot of other comorbidities. So like the terrible trifecta is what it's called, which is POTS, mast cell activation syndrome, and HEDS. And mast cell activation syndrome a lot of people think of it only as 
like skin sensitivities and anaphylaxis, but it affects your GI system more than any of the other comorbidities. And that's usually what I see having the biggest effect on the GI system. SIBO is also really, really common in this population and gastroparesis as well. And so I am not a registered dietitian. I do have a background in nutrition, so I am comfortable talking to patients through this stuff, but usually I will have them go to a registered dietitian. And that is something that I do in my coaching program is create a care team. And so with Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome, you clearly have a lot going on. It's a systemic disorder. You need multiple people that you can trust on your care team. And that is a big part of what I do. How did you go about like finding the people for your care team? Networking, reaching out, asking people, talking, starting conversations. Gotcha. And then have you found that, sorry, Austin, go ahead. No, you're good. You go. Go ahead. No, keep going. You're on a roll. I was, I was just going to ask if you found that like there is a best diet for those patients. I don't know that there's a best diet for anything generalizable, but I would say doing an elimination diet and primarily focusing on eliminating high histamine foods is what most registered dietitians will put these patients on to start and then see what interacts with their body the best or the least. I will say that high protein, in my opinion, is one of the most important factors, especially when we're dealing with fatigue. Um, and eating can be really, really hard in this population because of GI issues. And we know that there is a common theme of eating disorders because of these GI issues. So always being cautious of that and keeping that in mind when you're working with these patients. Um, one of the things I've kind of been wondering is because obviously you're like only virtual. Um, how did you go about working on your communication skills? Because obviously like being virtual, that's really all you have. Um, but I feel like with all of us going through Cairo school, we get a really good basis of like anatomy and neurology and uh, like diagnosis. Um, but I feel like the school kind of in a way dropped the ball in terms of like patient communication. So I just want to know, like, did you seek outside sources? Was it just through trial and error? Like, how did you go about kind of building your communication skills? Yeah, so I actually got really lucky and had the best preceptor in the entire world, Dr. Amy, if you're listening to this. Um, she taught me everything I know about communicating with patients. But I think some great resources are Hannah Moves on Instagram. He has a communicate course. Everything he puts out, I think, is absolutely amazing. And then also reading research and seeing what patients are more accustomed to, what they're not. Also, Cali Plus is a great, great, great way to learn how to communicate. Um, being involved in the Level Up initiative in general is a great way to work on your communication skills. And then we, me and um, Dr. David, are we recently started a clinical concept mentorship, which this is all we talk about is communication. Um, so I definitely do think that having something outside of school is important because we don't get that in school. Yeah, I definitely agree. Cause I, I, like I said earlier, like, I feel like we are really good at, uh, the clinical side of things, but you don't realize how much, um, I, I would say even more so than the diagnosis and all the other stuff that communication, like it really is about that. Um, it's yeah, it's definitely. And just being able to talk to your patients about certain things and kind of, I mean, especially for you, like, I'm sure you get a lot of people where 
it feels like you're almost talking them off the cliff and just kind of like bringing them down and letting them know that that things might not be what they they seem to be because some other clinician told them uh elsewise yeah definitely um austin's more of the he's hitting the biopsychosocial stuff i'm yeah i have so many questions in terms of like exercise and everything um so i'm gonna jump back to that (laughs) um one of the things i was curious about and i don't know if this is like an obvious thing and i just don't know you're the expert so i want to ask you um what about stretching for people people who are hypermobile yeah is that okay or is that like so it really depends if it's an area that continually continuously subluxes i try to stay away from it at the beginning and it also how are we defining stretching because dynamic stretching and static stretching are very very different and My kind of rule of thumb is you don't want to be in one position for too long in general. That includes stretches. And so that's the only kind of quote unquote issue I have with yoga. And really the only modifications I make for hypermobility in yoga is don't stay in your positions for longer than three minutes, even if the rest of the class is because you just don't need that. But I will say one thing with stretching, especially in a gymnastics or cheerleading setting, overstretching, which is when you have like blocks and they're doing splits on them to push through their end range is extremely contraindicated in this population and is never, never, ever necessary. And they, they already have the mobility. Don't put them through that, especially at a young age when they don't know what it's doing to their body. Um, that is one that I definitely am against, but normal stretching when I think it's really is about how we define stretching. Cause I don't think when you say stretching, you mean the splits, you mean like doing normal stretches. That's, that's gonna right. Be- yeah. So like, cause when I was thinking about like just normal stretches and everything like that, like obviously like we're not, we're not changing the length of the tissue when we're doing that. So like I, like if a patient who's hypermobile asked me that, I'd be like, okay, yeah, like that's fine. But I didn't know if like ultimately like this can like the stretching ultimately condition the patient in the long run to have less pain or like is there no correlation with that like at all? I I don't know that we can make that correlation yet. I don't think that it's shown in the literature and I don't think that I've seen it in real life either. Um, I think that if a stretch feels good and you're not doing it for too long, continue doing it. If you're in a position that is causing something to sublux more, don't do that. Um, but strength is the real missing piece. I'm learning so much. <laughs> um, I guess my question would be like, obviously you're, you specialize in this area of hypermobility, but what would you say to other clinicians that maybe they're not as comfortable uh, working with individuals with hypermobility? Um, what would you kind of key point on like, what they should focus on and how they should go about that? Or should they kind of seek out someone who kind of more specializes in this? I'm always a fan of saying, I don't know the answer to this, but I'm going to find somebody that does. And reaching out, the EDS Society has a providers list of different providers in different areas that specialize in EDS. But if you are going to go and try to help this client or patient, just remembering that they have been through a lot a lot of medical gaslighting. They have been told really scary things about their body and they have to do a lot to just live on a day-to-day basis. So approach them with empathy and listen, validate and reassure 
and your communication with them is really, really key. And then obviously, please don't adjust their necks. Um, I've, I think I've hyped on that enough in all of my content and anything I've been on, but it is extremely contraindicated and just don't do it. Definitely good to know, especially because I'm sure, like we said, like we don't learn enough about this in school. So, yeah. um, so have you recently had any clients where like, you've kind of like been stumped in terms of like, they're not, maybe they're not progressing the way you were hoping, like, and how do you approach that as a clinician? Yeah, definitely. I mean, all the time. I actually had a client recently that I was stumped and I reached out to somebody who I respect and he hopped on a call with her and helped me out. So reaching out to other people and say, and I told the client straight up, I was like, I'm going to be honest. I don't know what to do in this situation. I'm going to reach out to some colleagues and get some answers and then come back to you. And she was so receptive to that and so appreciative of that. And she's doing great now. Um, So I really think that is the best thing that you could do for your patients. But in general, when I'm stumped on a case, I talk it over with my peers and read about it and do some research on it and try to figure things out. But we also can't always help everybody. And I think that's a hard pill to swallow sometimes. And that is the biggest learning lesson I've had so far in my career. And it's okay to admit that. Right. Yeah, for sure. And I think that's especially as like young docs coming out, they obviously want to help everyone. And uh, it can definitely be something that sets us back a little bit. Um, Just having that mindset of like, we're going to fix every single person that walks in the door. Um, Austin, did you have anything else? I hit everything I wanted to Um, to ask. No, like I I just love what you said, uh, not being afraid to reach out to other people, because I think sometimes... We think, oh, we went through all the schooling, like we should know, we should have all the answers. Uh, And then like you're working with a patient who's obviously like a paying client and sometimes like you don't have the answers. So to kind of be able to admit that and go about it in a way where you can communicate to the patient like that is like super valuable. Because at the end of the day, like we're just trying to do what's best for them. Um, Yeah, 100%. No, the, the worst thing you could do is just either pretend like you know what's going on or just kind of go about what you think because I'm sure a lot of the people that you've seen have already had that happen to them like countless amount of times. Totally. And something that is always in my head about this specific topic, if you're always trying to be the hero, that means that your patient is the victim. And so you're not trying to be the hero. You're trying to help And there's a big, big, big difference in that. And ego can get in the way a lot of the time. Don't be afraid to ask for help. It actually makes you a much, much, much better clinician. And it's going to make your patient better off in the long run. Yeah, definitely. I love that. Um, Taylor, do you want to just throw out your like Instagram handle or anything else or any other handle that people can find you at? Yeah, so you can find me at the Hypermobile Cairo on TikTok, on Instagram, and at thehypermobilecairo.com. Um, that's where majority of my information is. I was primarily on TikTok, but now I think I'm even Instagram and TikTok, which is weird for me. <laughs> but we're learning to like it. We're learning, we're learning the new platforms. <laughs> I'm trying to get so much better on social media about like posting videos, but like I don't know. Maybe one day I'll have more confidence. Half the time I text Austin like right after I'm like, you like this so that I don't feel so lame. I'm like, it's nobody good. cares. Nobody yeah. cares. Just post That's it. what I tell her. I know. I'm <laughs> trying to get into that mindset. I'm getting there slowly. I'm working on it. 
And what's your goal with posting? Always ask yourself that. If your goal is to reach more people, you can't do that if you're too scared to post. So that's right. Boom. I just make sure that I find really good remixes and hope that people are like, wait, this is actually pretty good. <laughs> but uh, Taylor, we appreciate you coming on. Um, honestly, like you gave us so much information in such a short amount of time. Like I filled two pages here. So that was awesome. Um, but seriously, we we really thank you for coming on. We appreciate it a lot. Yeah, thank you guys for having me and thank you guys for starting this. I think it's awesome that you guys are doing this. Yeah, for oh, sure. Oh, yeah, we Appreciate love it. it. <laughs> I just like seeing Austin. Oh, yeah. Good to hang out. But, all right, Taylor, thanks again. No problem.